You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. I thought what I would start with uh, is maybe uh, for those of you who aren't familiar with Jeffers, give you uh, sort of the Torhouse docent spiel about who he is, how he came to the peninsula, uh, sort of a brief biography of Jeffers, and then we can launch into reading some of his poems together, as uh, as you like. So uh, biographically, the story of Robinson Jeffers is, uh, I'll condense it down for you, the Cliff Notes version. Uh, He was actually born outside of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania in 1887. Actually, it was January 10th. And uh, the day that he was born, it's interesting to note there was a blizzard in that area. So he was actually born on the day of a blizzard. This will come to play in just a few moments. Uh, He was raised uh, by his father and his mother. His father was a Presbyterian minister and an academic. And so Jeffers, both Jeffers and his brother were homeschooled in the old classic tradition of that time. Lots of emphasis on languages, Latin, uh, Hebrew, um, the, uh, the old classics. And uh, he was, his father was a very strict academician in that regard. At some point in time, roughly at about the age of uh, 15, uh, because they had, the family had some small funds, Uh, they were able to send Jeffers abroad to study in Switzerland. Uh, When he came back, by the time he came back, his father, for health reasons, had to leave the ministry, and his father took an academic position in Southern California. Jeffers returns, uh, I believe he enrolls at the University of Pittsburgh for one year, I think he enrolls at the age of 16, and then comes west to uh, be with his father and his family. Uh, That's how we get him from Pennsylvania out here. And uh, essentially at the age of 17, he attempts to enroll in Occidental. And uh, however Occidental chose to assess him at that point in time, based upon his homeschooling and his one year of study abroad, uh, Occidental makes the determination that he's academically advanced far enough to be enrolled as a junior. So at the age of 17, he enters Occidental as a junior. And two years later, he graduates. And uh, then uh, his intention is to enroll at the University of Southern California as a pre-med student. And with kind of the long-range goal of translating German medical text. But uh, his family, uh, his mother and his father talk him into studying abroad once more. Uh, Actually, they talk him into going abroad with them where he enrolls at the University of Zurich for a year. And uh, he studies, takes an incredible array of classes. Uh, he takes uh, Dante, uh, French literature, uh, old English literature, Spanish romance poetry. And the interesting thing about these is most of the instruction at the university was in German. Uh, Dante was taught in Italian. Uh, Beowulf made, of course, uh, made use of uh, old Anglo-Saxon. And, uh, the Spanish literature class was taught in medieval Spanish. So he has this tremendous facility for languages already. Uh, When he comes back from that year abroad, he does in fact study, uh, enroll at the University of Southern California, 
where he meets the love of his life, one Una Call Custer. Two years older than him, uh, they fall madly in love, they love all things uh, literary, all things Celtic, uh, all things spiritual. It's a true bonding of spirits with one small exception. Uh, that is to say there's one obstacle to the relationship. Una is married to an up-and-coming young lawyer in Los Angeles at the time, one Teddy Custer. So like all such relationships, there are lots of fits and stops and starts. Uh, at one point in time, uh, Jeffers breaks the relationship off and uh, actually uh, goes up to Tacoma, to the University of Washington to study forestry for a year. Doesn't really take with him, or so he claims, so he drops out after a year, returns to Southern California. And according to family legend, uh, doesn't tell anyone that he's coming back, uh, simply returns to the area and is walking across the street when he encounters Una coming the other way. Takes this as a sign they're destined to be together. Uh, the affair starts up again, uh, becomes scandalous, makes the front page of the Los Angeles Times social section. Teddy Custer is quoted as referring to Una as that poet taster. I'm sorry, referring to Jeffers as that poet taster, which I guess was kind of a genteel slam in those days. Uh, but eventually, uh, Custer agrees to the divorce uh, on the condition that Jeffers and Una don't have anything to do with each other for a year. Uh, if you're familiar with Hemingway, kind of a similar thing occurs at one point in Hemingway's life. So the arrangement is, the terms are that Una has to go to Europe uh, for a year. Her and Jeffers aren't to have anything to do with each other, and then at the end of a year, if they still want to be together, Custer will grant them the divorce. Uh, interestingly enough, all parties agree to that agreement. Uh, Una does, in fact, go away uh, to Europe. Jeffers drifts up to Santa Barbara, which is how we get him a little closer to our area. He drifts up to Santa Barbara for what he refers to as a period of idleness and drunkenness. And seven months into the separation, Custer, as the lawyer, falls in love with his legal secretary. And so uh, at that point in time, he writes Una and says, okay, you can come back, you know deals off, you can have them if you want them, essentially. Um, Una returns, the couple is reunited, the papers are filed for the divorce, and I, it's something like, uh, however it works out, the divorce is final on something like May, uh, May 30th, May 31st, and they are in fact married the very next day. How old are they at that point? You know, I can tell you, I'm gonna have to check my notes. Uh, See, it's 1887, roughly 1913. So Jeffers is like late 20s. I think she's early 30s, something like that, roughly. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, they're married the next day. Uh, interestingly enough, they are married in Tacoma, Washington. They return to uh, Southern California. Uh, Una becomes pregnant with their daughter, Maeve, whom she delivers, and Maeve lives one day. And it's actually, I gotta tell you, that's my favorite poem by Jeffers, is his lament to the loss of his daughter. Uh, Maeve lives one day and, and uh, passes, and it's a devastating loss to both of them, so much so that uh, they're really thinking at this point in time of sort of expatriating themselves to England. The idea is that to kind of leave Los Angeles, leave those associations, and go to England. But uh, World War I is on the verge of breaking out. A friend advises them that it's probably not a safe place to be in, to go at this point in time. And so the friend says, why don't you come up and look at the Monterey Peninsula? 
Uh, I think you'll find that the climate, the countryside, there are a lot of things that uh, are really very similar to England. I think you'll like it a lot. And so purely on that recommendation of that friend at that moment in time, they decide, why not? So they come up and take a look at it. And Jeffers will later write in one of his letters that when the coach uh, got over the ridge and they were able to look down on the peninsula, they didn't know it, but they'd come to their inevitable place. That's how eventually we get Jeffers uh, here to the Monterey Peninsula. Uh, when they move here, they move into a couple houses while tour house is being built. When they move here, two things happen relatively quickly. Uh, Jeffers, in fact, uh, comes into an inheritance from a distant relative, and his father passes away, coming into a, allowing Jeffers to come into a second inheritance. One is like worth $10,000, and the other provides a trust of like $200 a month. So this is roughly 1913, 1914. That's not a small sum of money at that point in time. And it enables Jeffers to, in fact, start to buy property and to begin to build tour house, which I think is the picture in here in your reader's guide. There's a picture of tour house somewhere, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, this is actually uh, roughly here on page seven. Gives you an idea. Uh, that's tour house, of course and the tower that he eventually builds for you now. Um, if you're familiar with in this area at all, uh, you know that uh, many houses are uh, built, were built here historically by a guy named M.J. Murphy. And actually, Tor House is a Murphy house. Uh, Jeffers uh, contracted with Murphy to build the house. And uh, Murphy, I've seen the actual, the actual bill of sale that Murphy typed up. So to build Tor House and the septic system associated with it, uh, Murphy charged him $2,500. And uh, said something to the effect that it was gonna take him four months to build it. And Jeffers thought that was going to take too long. So Jeffers then hires himself out as a stonemason's apprentice to Murphy and literally puts himself on the books. Uh, and so Jeffers pays himself $4 a day as a so like he pays Murphy to pay him $4 a day. But in the poem Tor House, Jeffers says this is where he learned the art of making stone love stone. And uh, that's how he did that. He actually, in fact, became a stonemason's apprentice. Uh, he builds Tor House. Uh, by this point in time, uh, Una has given birth to the two twin boys, uh, Donnan and Garth. And uh, Jeffers will write later on in one of his poems that uh, you know they raised two boys here and the place was made and hardly human. Um, then he goes about building uh, Hawk Tower, which is I think also in that picture. Um, he builds Hawk Tower because Unola had a love for Irish towers. He wanted her to have a tower. So again, it takes him about four years to build the tower. And he'll make reference in several of his poems to that little tower. In fact, I think there's a quote in the Reader's Guide uh, from a poem called For Una, and it says, uh, I built a, I should be able to, I actually have the whole poem here if you'd like to hear it. The line is something about, uh, page 11. Yeah, page 11. Uh, I built her a tower when I was young, sometimes she will die. I built it with my hands, I hung stones in the sky. And uh, we built our tower and sets about, uh, then of course, writing and uh, doing the other stonemasonry. I should tell you uh, very quickly here, uh, in the way Jeffers would 
live in those days, the way he wrote was that he would write for half a day. Uh, he'd get up in the morning, Una uh, would fix him a big breakfast, uh, then he would go upstairs and write until she called him down for lunch. And then essentially the day's writing was done. Uh, unless he was up against a deadline or something, of course. But you know, he sent at some point in time in the afternoon, when she called him down for lunch, he would stop, and then he would spend the rest of the day doing the stonemason or whatever else needed to be done. So it was sort of a way of balancing the physical and the aesthetic life. Um, other things I should point out to you, very, uh, just very simply here, uh, one of the things he did in the afternoons was plant trees. So at one point in time, because of the forestry that he studied at Washington, uh, he planted some 2,000 trees all around Carmel Point and around Torhouse. So if you've ever been there, uh, you see a lot of those full-growth eucalyptuses and cypresses. They were actually planted by Jeffers, and he would water them by hand. So the joke was in those days that uh, if you were a guest at Jeffers' house, as you would be invited to be, and spent the night, you would certainly be encouraged to help him water the trees in the morning. Mm -hmm. um, that's when his literary fame starts to begin. Uh, he kind of reaches uh, its apex about the time, 1932, he's on the cover of Time Magazine. Uh, I can't think of the last time I saw a poet on the cover of Time Magazine. Uh, then his career begins sort of a, a descent. Uh, other quick point things I should tell you. Uh, Jeffers and Una uh, like to consider themselves literary primitivists. So they lived pretty much as simply as they could. If you've ever taken a tour of Tor House, you know, it's a pretty uh, simple place. Um, with regards to Teddy Custer, Una's first husband, uh, shortly after Tor House is built, Teddy moves up to Carmel and builds a house just on the other side of Jeffers' property line. And if you have ever go to Tor House, I can tell you, I mean, it's, it's an easy walk. It's like it's a four-minute walk down to the water. But right on the other side of Jeffers' property line, uh, Teddy builds his house. I will tell you two things about it that I, guarantee, I can guarantee. One, it is a much bigger, and two, it is a much more impressive stone house. And uh, there's a point in time where Teddy has an uninterrupted view over everything that's going on at Tor House. And again, family legend is that he would not go to bed at night until all the lights were out in Tor House, and that Una was in fact, you know, he thought Una would then be safe. Um, I mention that because to give you a nice sense of Jeffers, uh, eventually, as I tell when I give my tours, they all they work it out in what I call true California fashion. Uh, we have uh, archival pictures in the docent office of uh, Custer and Jeffers sitting by a pool, and in those one-piece bathing suits of the time, each one of them with a twin on a hand, smiling and laughing. Uh, Custer goes on to have two or three more wives. I believe the second of which writes a posthumous biography of Una. She actually, she becomes one of Una's dearest friends. Uh, and I mention this only to give you a sense of Jeffers and where he was coming from. Uh, because they're literary primitivists, Jeffers doesn't have uh, a phone put into Tor House, I think, until 1941. And he doesn't have electricity put in until 1949. So, you know, you can imagine at the height of his career, he's on the cover of Time Magazine in 1932, but the only way people could contact him by phone was they literally had to call Custer. And then you can imagine that Custer would walk down and say, you know, Bennett surf from Random House called, you know, problem with your gal, he's going to check it out or something. And then Custer, you know, Jeffers would walk back up there and use the phone. Um, essentially, 
uh, wrapping this up very quickly for you. Uh, Una uh, passes away in 1950, and uh, Jeffers lives 12 more years. Uh, they're very difficult years for him, uh, and very personally difficult years. Uh, but he does, in fact, pass away uh, in Tor House. He wrote a poem years before he passed away called The Bed by the Window, the poem where he actually says that he intended to die uh, in that bed. That was the original intent, that someday he would die in that bed. And in fact, as I mentioned, he was born on January 10, 1887, the day that he was born. There was, in fact, a blizzard in Pittsburgh. Uh, he dies in his own, in that bed, the bed by the window at Tor House on January 20th, 1962. The day that he dies, it snowed in Carmel. So, so that gives you a sort of a sense, a little bit of Jeffers, uh, and at least of his life. Uh, any questions? All right. Would you like to look at some poems? Anybody have a favorite? Carmel Point. Ah, sure, of course. Because I do, I have several. <laughs> I actually marked that one too. Carmel Point. You explained something to me. I, I, I first thought Tor House was what I now realize was Custer's house. Oh yeah, it's not. No, and a lot of people can make that yeah. uh, mistake. In fact, there's a point in time when I guess they used to have a hang a sign out there that said, "This is not Tor House." That's kind of nice. <laughs> Carmel Point, page 102. Um, the extraordinary patience of things. This beautiful place defaced with a crop of suburban houses. How beautiful when we first beheld it. Unbroken field of poppy and lupin walled with clean cliffs. No intrusion but two or three horses pasturing or a few milch cows rubbing their flanks on the outcrop rockheads. Now the spoiler has come. Does it care? Not faintly. It has all time. It knows the people are a tide that swells and in time will ebb and all their works dissolve. Meanwhile, the image of the pristine beauty lives in the very grain of the granite, safe as the endless ocean that climbs our cliff. As for us, we must uncenter our minds from ourselves. We must unhumanize our views a little and become confident as the rock and ocean that we were made from. And. Uh, Got another? I have one, but it's not in here. What is it? It's called Still the Mind Smiles. Let's see if it's here in my desk. Um, that's the title? Yeah, S yeah, S T I L F Still the Mind Smiles. Okay. Well, all right, still the mind smiles. Still the mind smiles at its own rebellions, knowing all the while that civilization and the other evils that make humanity ridiculous remain beautiful in the whole fabric. 
excesses that balance each other like the paired wings of a flying bird. Misery and riches, civilization and squalid savagery, mass war and the odor of unmanly peace. Tragic flourishes above and below the normal life. In order to value this fretful time, it is necessary to remember our norm, the unaltered passions, the same colored wings of imagination that the crowd clips in lonely places new grown. The unchanged lives of herdsmen and mountain farms where men are few and few tools, a few weapons, and their dawns are beautiful. From here, for normal, one sees both ways and listens to the splendor of God, the exact poet, the sonorous antistrophe of desolation to the strophe multitude. Why do you like that poem? It just speaks to me, and it speaks to the time as well. To the time? To the time of Jeffers was? No, this time. Oh, to this time. Do you think so? Well, I think it, it just gives a, a sense of the overall situation instead of focusing on all the bad things, I guess. Yes. Even though look at the big bad things, you, you see the beauty as well still. Sure. Mm -hmm. Sure. Sure. I was struck by the term unmanly peace. Yeah. Could you comment on that in his life? I understood he was. There was something about him in the Second World War. Yeah, I mean, I can comment on it generally. That's uh, yeah. all I know. Yeah, so uh, in general terms. Uh, you know, I know that... Uh, I guess like many of us, I think, you know, if I look at Jeffers, I think he was sort of a, uh, he was a person of contradictions. I think he was largely uh, pacifistic, but uh, I believe he kept a weapon in the house. I mean, there's a billy club hanging there by the front door when you walk in, but you know, Carmel in those days was you not know, necessarily, it was kind of a bohemian, potentially rough area. Um, I know that, uh, he thought that uh, World War I uh, didn't solve anything, that the Second World War was inevitable. Mm -hmm. um, I know that when the Second World War did break out, he actually flew the American flag from the top of Hawk Tower, and he did pull coastal watch duty, uh, either down at Big Sur or from the tower, keeping an eye on things. Um, but I know that he also uh, got into a lot of trouble, not a lot, but he got into some, some trouble uh, for kind of criticizing American policy and involvement. And of course he was, I mean his views towards mankind are somewhat dark anyway. But I have a personal thought on that, which I'll share with you if you'd like. Uh, you know, the rock singer Joni Mitchell has this song and the lyric goes something like, uh, all romantics, all romantics uh, die the same fate, cynical and drunk and boring someone in some dark cafe. You know, uh, I think those among us who are the most dark about humanity are really the ones who are most disappointed because they're probably the most romantic in thinking that, you know, things are so great and they're just struggling with the disappointment. So I know that Jeffers comes off as sometimes really not having a lot of regard for people, but. I suspect deep down inside, he really did have a lot of regard. He just was so disappointed at the way it went. But uh, 
Do you think that was an ironic line? Unmanly peace? Yeah, I think he really doesn't see man. I mean, if I'm, I'm just like, this is purely George speculating. Um, I don't think Jeffers sees man as necessarily a source of peace in the world. More the spoiler, the disruptor. You know. But, uh, yeah. That would be, uh, in fact, uh, yeah. Uh, this is a poem. Uh, when I, uh, Ruth mentioned that I was at Big Sur last Saturday, and I couldn't find this poem. So, uh, to give you an idea, uh, this will probably help you here. Uh, this is called The Last Conservative, and uh, Jeffers and this is writing about uh, what the place was like when he first got there to Carmel Point, and there was like nothing else around, just him and his little stone house and how things have changed. And then he, you know, he makes references, the peaceful images at the end are naturally all of nature. So it goes, uh, against the outcrop of boulders of a raised beach, we built our house when I and my love were young. Here long ago, the surf thundered, now 50 feet lower, and there's a kind of shell mound. I used to see ghosts of Indians squatting beside the stones in their firelight. The rock cheeks have red fire stains, but the place was maiden, no previous building, no neighbors, nothing but the elements, rock, wind, and sea. In moonstruck nights, the mountain coyotes howled in our dooryard, our doe and fawn stared in the lamplit window. We raised two boys here. All that we saw or heard was beautiful and hardly human. Oh, heavy change. The world deteriorates like a rotting apple, worms and skin. They have built streets around us, new houses line them, and cars obsess them. And my dearest has died. The ocean, at least, is not changed at all, cold, grim, and faithful. And I still keep a hard edge of forest haunted by long gray squirrels and horse herons. And hark the quail running on the low roof's worn shingles, their little feet patter like raindrops. So, you know, there's a kind of a constant image of Jeffers, I think, of this man as the spoiler. Uh, should we read Torhaus? Um, more references to his forest, I think. Page 44. That was beautiful. Thank you for reading that. Thank you. Uh, yeah, thank you. I, that's very kind of you to say. Thank you. All right, Tor House. If you should look for this place, and this is, once again, the reference to the forest, you know, that he planted. When he still talks about his forest. Those are all those trees that he planted, some 2,000 of them. Tor House. If you should look for this place after a handful of lifetimes, perhaps in my planted forest, a few may stand yet dark-leaved Australians or the coast cypress, haggard with storm drift, but fire and the axe are devils. Look for the foundations of sea-worn granite. My fingers had the art to make stone love stone. You will find some remnant, but if you should look in your idleness after 10,000 years, it is the granite knoll on the granite and lava tongue in the midst of the bay 
by the mouth of the Carmel River Valley. These four will remain in the change of names. You will know it by the wild sea fragrance of wind, though the ocean may have climbed or retired a little. You will know it by the valley inland that our sun and our moon were born from before the poles changed. And Orion in December evenings was strung in the throat of the valley like a lamp-lighted bridge. Come in the morning, you will see white gulls weaving a dance over blue water, the wane of the moon, their dance companion, a ghost walking by daylight, but whiter and whiter than any bird in the world. My ghost you needn't look for. It is probably here, but a dark one, deep in the granite, not dancing on wind with, mad, with the mad wings and the day moon. And to follow up, uh, the next poem, Herd Hawks, since we were talking about that. And, uh, I should tell you, um, in addition, because they were sort of very, very, very spiritually inclined, uh, there are all sorts of religious icons at Torhaus. Periodically on tours, I'm asked if Jeffers was a Christian. I think I can pre-uncategorically say no, but he was very spiritual. I think he appreciated any efforts by man to sort of transcend, uh, you know, his own self-absorption. So, but uh, one of the things they did in their their spiritualism is because her name was Una, she adopted the symbol for herself of the unicorn. So. Uh, I'm very conscious of that now because when I do air quotes, I feel like John McCain briefly. Uh, but she adopted as her symbol the unicorn. So, and she gave Jeffers the symbol of the hawk. So uh, throughout all of Torhaus, should you ever go there, it's almost in every room there are unicorns and hawks. Even in the tower, there are unicorns and hawks. Either part of the woodwork or pictures or some ceramic thing or something. So, herd hawks. The broken pillar of the wing jags from the clotted shoulder. The wing trails like a banner in defeat. No more to use the sky forever, but live with famine and pain a few days. Cat nor coyote will shorten the week of waiting for death. There is game without talons. He stands under the oak bush and waits the lame feet of salvation. At night he remembers freedom and flies in a dream. The dawn ruins it. He is strong and pain is worse to the strong. Incapacity is worse. The curs of the day come and torment him at distance. No one but death the redeemer will humble that head, the intrepid readiness, the terrible eyes. The wild god of the world is sometimes merciful to those that ask mercy not often to the arrogant. You do not know him, you communal people, or you have forgotten him. Intemperate and savage, the hawk remembers him. Beautiful and wild, the hawks and men that are dying remember him. And part two. I'd sooner accept the penalties, kill a man than a hawk. 
but the great red tail had nothing left but unable misery from the bone too shattered for mending, the wing that trailed under his talons when he moved. We had fed him six weeks. I gave him freedom. He wandered over the foreland hill and returned in the evening asking for death, not like a beggar, still eyed with the old implacable arrogance. I gave him the lead gift in the twilight. What fell was relaxed, owl, downy, soft feminine feathers, but what soared? The fierce rush, the night herons by the flooded river cried fear at its rising before it was quite unsheathed from reality. That line, I'd sooner kill a hawk than a man, periodically, strikes people. But I always have to say, well, but he does say, accept the penalties. <laughs> yes. That's it's the, kind of a qualifier. That's deterrent. Exactly. Exactly. <coughs> that is a qualifier. Exactly. But it does say a lot. Yeah. Accept the penalties. You would sooner kill a man than a hawk. Right. Yeah, I totally agree. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, something else? Something a little more? I've got one. Sure. Like. It's the very first poem here. The Stonecutters? To the Stonecutters. Okay. It goes with the house. Okay. Sure. To the Stonecutters. Stone cutters fighting time with marble. You four defeated challengers of oblivion eat cynical earnings. Knowing rock splits, records fall down. The square-limbed Roman letters scale in the thaws, wear in the rain. The poet as well builds his monument mockingly. For man will be blotted out, the blithe earth die. The brave son die blind and blackened to the heart. Yet stones have stood for a thousand years, and pained thoughts found the honey of peace in whole poems. So. Why do you like that one? Well, I like that one because uh, he equates the stones with the poems, that those are the things that are going to remain. He does. I, I really like that. So. He does. It reminds me of something I read about Russia and how they, they put flowers on the graves of poets. Uh, they're like the rock stars of, uh, <laughs> of, of Russia. Russia? Yeah. Hmm, kind of like that idea. I like the last line, the honey of peace. In old poems, yes, yes. Um, I'm trying to look for uh, the one where he says, uh, I hate my verses. Do you, I'm, I'm kind of aware of myself, you know, holding the mic and not, you know, shuffling through the book, but... I'm glad to hear I, that, because I'm, I'm aware of you, too. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I, I'm just, I'm, 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 this is something I'm, I'm intrigued with a lot, but do you feel, I mean, do you take the poems in differently when you're listening to them, as opposed to reading them or following them? I mean, as a poet, how do you, how do you see that, that difference? You're asking me personally? Yeah. Um, I, 
when I read Jeffers out loud, uh, I respond to it a lot more positively than if when I first read them uh, on the page. Mm -hmm. and I totally get a different sense. Um, when I read him out loud, I kind of hear, I'm able to hear his voice and uh, they strike a much stronger chord with me. Uh, the, if I, the first time I tend to read a Jeffers poem, uh, I almost miss it. I feel like you know, a baseball metaphor. Most of the time when I read a Jeffers poem cold, it's like a foul ball. <laughs> and I have to like really, should I give you an example? Sure. Yeah. Because, so do you think, I mean, so then reading along, but hearing it orally, is, what, is, is that the same for you as not having the, the print in front of you at all? Are those two things the same, as long as someone's reading it out loud? I, I don't enjoy poetry when I read it. I, I have a complete different experience when I hear it spoken. But you're speaking about reading it to yourself. Right, reading it to myself. But, it, but, but here, like if you're listening to George read and you're reading along, is that the same experience with or without the book I, for I you? I try not to read the book. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Um, for me, I, the way he is reading it, I, it's, it's much more meaningful than if I am just silently looking at the words. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, when I read it myself, I also feel as as you were saying, I, I hear the voice of the poet. I get meanings much beyond what I do if I'm just silently reading. So do, does anybody read it out loud? If you, I mean, am I the only crazy person that walks around my living room oh, reading no. poetry out loud? Poetry is meant to be read out loud. Well, it is a song, right? But initially, I, when I read it, I do read it quietly, and I have a kind of a similar response, George, that you mentioned. I've just started to read Jeffers from um, reading it quite a long time ago when I was in school and um, college. And when I initially read it, I almost feel like I start to miss it. And then when I read it out loud, it, it gives me a fuller sense of the poem. You know what I think? Um, I think that uh, it's probably a testament to his craft, uh, is that what I find is that I need to read his poems uh, three, four, five times. And I don't, and I don't do that. It's not like, you know, I just sit down in the afternoon and say, well, I think I'm going to have a glass of Chardonnay and I'm going to read Love the Wild Swanee times. But, you know, it's like every time I return to him, uh, I, I get a little more out of the poem. I understand it a little better. I think that it's really, some of his stuff is, is particularly dense and I need to, to take that kind of time to read it three, four, five times to get it. Uh, First time I read it, I may like it, but I, I don't get it all. And then the more I read it, and the more I read it out loud. And like, uh, I was going to give you an example. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I totally agree with that. Because the first time I read it, so certain things grabs me. And then I would go back and go back. And then you discover more and more. And as you get older, you discover more. Right. Yeah. Um, this is my favorite Jeffers poem. Um, and I'll, the first, I've always liked it, but every time I've read it, I've gotten more out of it. And uh, this is a lament to his wife a year to the day after the passing of their daughter, May. All right. 
And it, I had to read it uh, a number of times uh, before I finally got to what I think he's saying in the last lines when he's saying that, uh, essentially what he's saying is that she is now in a place that's kind of perhaps more serene than humanity, than uh, he calls it a region stormless, all serene. Uh, he talks about how like prayer has not helped them with their grief. And then uh, the last lines he's talking about, he says that uh, how like the dawning of the morn, the last lines of the poem are the dawning of the morn whose star is our most holy dead. And I, didn't, I never quite got that until I think just recently what he was referring to is as the sun rises every day, as beautiful as it is, that is a represents the potential of their daughter. That's their daughter. So uh, this is May 15th, 1915, and it's actually one of his unpublished poems. Uh, the story I understand on this edition was that Jeffers actually helped select the poems for this edition. And so he kind of gave, presumably gave consent for this to in fact be included. Who's the editor of that one? Is that Carmen? Uh, no, it's edited by somebody named Tim Hunt. Uh, May 5th, 1915. Again, this is a lament. This is a sad poem. Uh, May 5th, 1915 to UJ. That would be Una Jeffers. Today, a year ago, you went into the tangible shadow of death. And though upon your flame-like breath he had no power, yet suffering did. I waited on the steep descent like one cast off, useless, forbid, incapable of even prayer, that visionary opiate lent to other men in like despair. Death could not touch you, anguish could, but oh, much crueler anguish yet to come, for death lay desolate that late-born loveliness your pain should have redeemed. Your motherhood was violated and made vain. I was so glad at having you back from that fearful solitude. I grieve not then as now I do. Our little daughter would have been perhaps beyond humanity, divinely beautiful and free, being yours. I know not, but I know a region stormless, all serene, far from this dark, beholds her so. We need not follow the vain road of creeds that men walk lampless in to her imperishable abode. My dearest, over the small urns that holds but ashes and our loss, we reaching hands and loves across, more intimately now renew the tears we have wept, the vow we have sworn. We need no comfort, I and you, we gazing earnestly ahead behold the dawning of that morn whose star is our most holy dead. That's a powerful poem. And, um, sure, sure. Uh, he says, we need no comfort, I and you, we gazing earnestly ahead behold the dawning of that morn whose star is our most holy dead. And I think the star, the morning star, of course, is the sun. 
So, something lighter? Yes, please. All right. Jeffers has a sense of humor. Uh, page 106. He also had a certain amount of a, what's the kind word here? Well, I mean, all poets have a certain amount of competitive ego, wouldn't you say? Competitive with? Each other. Yeah, I'd say. <laughs> all right, let them alone. If God has been good enough to give you a poet, then listen to him. But for God's sake, let him alone until he is dead. No prizes, no ceremony, they kill the man. A poet is one who listens to nature and his own heart. And if the noise of the world grows up around him, and if he is tough enough, he can shake off his enemies, but not his friends. That is what withered Wordsworth and muffled Tennyson and would have killed Yeats. That is what makes Hemingway play the fool and Faulkner forget his art. There you are. And uh, on that same vein, um, on page 59, this is one of Jeffers, I guess, more well-known poems, Love the Wild Swan. I hate my verses, every line, every word. Oh, pale and brittle pencils, ever to try one grass blade's curve, or the throat of one bird that clings to twig ruffled against the white sky. Oh, cracked and twilight mirrors, ever to catch one color, one glinting flash of the splendor of things. Unlucky hunter, O oh, bullets of wax, the lion beauty, the wild swan wings, the storm of the wings. This wild swan of a world is no hunter's game. Better bullets than yours would miss the white breast. Better mirrors than yours would crack in the flame. Does it matter whether you hate your self? At least love your eyes that can see your mind that can hear music, the thunder of the wings, love the wild swan. What do you think he's saying? Um, well, I, I think don't know. he is lamenting in a way that he cannot capture any of these things that he's describing. And then he's saying, well, instead of hating yourself for not being able to do that, love the nature of the white swan. Yeah, I think you're right. I think he's talking about talking to himself as a poet and talking to poets in general saying, you know. Well, I know that feeling. Yes. Little writer's block. I write a line, I think, Jesus, that is so bad. That's not even close to what I'm trying to say. <laughs> you know, I'm shooting for a swan. I end up getting the scrub jay on my car. <laughs> Something like that. <laughs> you know? It's like, Jesus, that is so bad. You know. Or like, it seems brilliant until you read it again or you read it the next morning. Oh, uh, yeah. Uh, you <laughs> Sometimes read, you get a glimmer of brilliance. You read it in front of people and they fades. go, huh? 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 Yeah, that's so yeah. pathetic. 
Don't you think sometimes without that you will not get to the one that you really like? Well, that's what I keep telling myself, Alice. If I just write enough bad crap, I'm going to get to the good stuff. <laughs> that's what I keep thinking. If I just could get cracked through there. <laughs> I really like this poem. I think maybe that's the all that I'd like them all that we've read today. It's very relieving somehow. <laughs> yeah, I, it's, you know, at least, I mean, don't get mad at, you know, at least you can see the beauty. At least it's there. You can feel, I kind of, that's sort of, you know, there's some consolation too. At least you can appreciate what's there, even if you can't quite capture it. You know. I also feel like there's something to the, um, you know, don't. It's like you, it's really not yours to question what you're here to do. Yeah. Do it. Yeah. You're right. You know. Um, Very nice. You know, I don't know your poetry, poetry, but, but I. So he, so I, I'm so intrigued. By, I've always been so intrigued by the idea that Jeffers. I guess maybe I'm maybe I misinterpret this. Never felt the need to sort of have that circle completed, and I mean he never traveled very much, or no. you know read to people, or no. you know made his poetry uh, come alive, you know in the air. Yeah. Um, he just wrote. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, there's a. Um, um, I, I apologize for not knowing this, but. Prior to establishing the poet laureate, the honor of being poet laureate of the nation, uh, Congress initially established another award. And I, I'm sorry that I just don't know the name of it right off the top. But uh, Congress established another award, a congressional recognition of some kind, right? And Jeffers was the first recipient of that award. Yeah, that's pretty cool. And uh, I he had to go he agreed to go back and receive the award. And uh, if, I have, if I'm right on this, and I, I'm pretty sure I am, that, uh, that was at a time, again, his career was starting to sort of drop off a little bit. And so uh, friends talked him into giving a national reading tour. And I think that's the only national reading tour that he ever gave, was as taking the train, presumably from Monterey or San Francisco, back to DC to get the award. Uh, that he stopped off and gave uh, a speaking tour along the way. And uh, what year would that have been? You know, I mean, I hesitate to say that, but I'm, I'm thinking. I mean, I my first thought is, I would ballpark it like late 30s, perhaps early 40s. <coughs> uh, he was the first poet laureate. Well, he was not technically, but yes, he was the first That's one that Congress recognized. Right. Yes. And uh, yeah, we have we have picture. In fact, there's a uh, there's a large book. I'm sure Borders has it. It's called Poetry Speaks, and uh, it's a large book and has it's like a four CD set. Mm -hmm. And among the poets that are in there is actually a recording of Walt Whitman. Believe it or not, yeah, you can barely hear it, but it's there. <laughs> and uh, there's Jeffers is reading a couple poems in there, and uh, that those were recorded on that national speaking tour. And that's the only national tour that I think he ever gave. Mm -hmm. And Kitty's right, he just, you know, he just wrote. And uh, for him, like he didn't have, as you say, that need to complete that circle. But he had traveled so much when he was younger, and he had experienced so many other cultures, and he had that. I think for me, uh, he understood mythology and all of our, our own acting out of different mythologies sure. and things like that. And all that was captured in his poems. I mean, and the thing that was stable was nature, you know, 
nature's going to stay and we're just going to exactly. do, do our it is so it, it is so unusual for someone to not have um, ego yeah. and want that ego to be stroked by recognition. I mean, it, it's almost a basic need that human beings have. Sure. So uh, he was getting it from somewhere else. Yeah. I've always thought of him as a misanthrope. And yeah, he is kind of misanthropic, I've got to be honest with you. He is a little bit, yeah. And, um, and in what we're discussing right now, it seems like, yeah, he really doesn't care for the approval of men. He doesn't care for men. Yeah. Let me uh, read you. Uh, and women. <laughs> this is called uh, Floriuna, and it's the one that I made reference to. You don't have the poem. I don't think it's in your book. Uh, I guess we could check. I don't think it's it called Floriuna. Floriuna, yeah. That's one of the things I was. Uh, yes, it's 67. Oh, page 67. Perfect. Here we go. Great poem. Floriuna. One, I built her a tower when I was young, sometime she will die. I built it with my hands, I hung stones in the sky. Old but still strong, I climbed the stone, sometime she will die. Climb the steep rough steps alone and weep in the sky. Never weep, never weep. Never be astonished, dear, or two, never be astonished, dear, except change, nothing is strange. We have all seen the human race capture all its dreams, all except peace. We have watched mankind like Christ toil up and up to be hanged at the top. No longer envying the birds that ancient prayer for wings granted, and therefore the heavy, soot, the heavy sky over London, stallion hoofed, falls on the roofs. These are the falling years, they will go deep, Never weep, never weep. With clear eyes, explore the pit. Watch the grave fall. Watch the great fall with religious awe. Three. It is not Europe alone that is falling into blood and fire. Decline and fall have been dancing in all men's souls for a long while. Sometime at the last gasp comes peace to every soul never to mine until I find out and speak the things that I know. Okay, first three stanzas tend to be somewhat somber. <coughs> okay, and watch the fourth one here, there's sort of a shift. Four, tomorrow I will take up that heavy poem again about Ferguson, deceived and jealous man who bawled for the truth, the truth, and failed to endure its first least clean that poem bores me, and I hope will bore any sweet soul that reads it, being some ways my very self, but mostly my antipodes. But having waved the heavy artillery to fire, I must hammer on to an end. Tonight, dear, let's forget all that, that and the war, and annihil ourselves a little beyond time. You with this Irish whiskey, I with red wine, while the stars go over the sleepless ocean, and sometime after midnight I'll pluck you a wreath of chosen ones. We'll talk about love and death, rock-solid themes, old and deep as the sea. Admit nothing more timely, nothing less real, while the stars go over the timeless ocean 
and when they vanish, we'll have spent the night well. Well, there you are. You know, despite war, despite all of the other things that are going on, I think, you know, for me, that's sort of Jeffers. We're going to just spend the night, spend an hour talking about poetry. I should tell you the references. Una, uh, uh, I mean, you would, I just love this. I just love this about her. Una was a whiskey drinker, mm. and Jeffers was the red wine drinker. So. And not just whiskey, but Irish whiskey. Clearly. <laughs> yes. Probably everybody knows this, but did Una ever write? Uh, did she write? Right. Did she, she wrote music. Uh, she didn't write poetry. She wrote actual well, notes. You know, that's right? that's an interesting journals. that's always, what's that? Journals. She yeah. wrote journals. Yeah. It seemed like it would be impossible not to write poetry. Well, uh, you know, I don't want to walk out on that wire too far. Jeffers always said that she was a lot of the inspiration for his work, you know, so uh, I'm sure there's a certain, there's, I would be pretty comfortable saying there's probably a lot of Una's influence. Mm. Uh, there work. is a poem that he has written in which he says, your conversation, your presence are in all of my poems. Sure, exactly, yeah. Uh, she was also, you know, because Jeffers was, the, was writing, I mean, Jeffers has this famous line that goes something like, uh, not famous, it, it goes something like, it's been recorded, and it's, it's been repeated to me a number of times, he said this, that, you know, if a man, I mean, he's a terrible correspondent, just a terrible correspondent. But he said something like, if a man doesn't think, if a man thinks he doesn't have enough to do, let him move out to a you know, promontory, build a stone house, father twins, uh, publish a couple best-selling books of poetry, and attempt stone masonry, he'll have enough, more than enough to fill his day. So, uh, Una was the family correspondent, Apparently, she was just a prodigious correspondent. I mean, she'd write six, eight letters a day, apparently. A day. Just responding to things, as well as uh, Kitty says, keeping journals. Uh, so all the details of their lives must be known. Uh, well, you know, at Tour House, there are people who are like really deep archivists. They have a lot of Una's letters and, uh, and Jeffrey's letters, so yeah. It's an interesting, I mean, it was a, it's interesting to look at the dynamics of the house. I mean, Una kind of captained the ship, and Jeffers was, you know, an artist half a day, and stonemason the second half. So, all right, uh, one more. Sure. Anybody got a favorite? Okay. Uh, how about the bed with the window? Bed by the window. That's probably a good one to close with in our hour together. Uh, page 54. One of the unique features of Tor House uh, that I point out to people, uh, I'm sure isn't a coincidence, is that the way Jeffers designed the house, and he, he sort of he designed the house to look like a barn that uh, Una had fallen in love with in England. She just loved this barn. so. The original house looks very barn-like. But it's really interesting, if you ever get a chance to take a tour over there, that uh, each room, in order to get the maximum benefit of the views of each room, you need to use it in the way in which it is intended. That is to say, if you go into the guest bedroom and you stand there, the window seems remarkably 
low, like you can see out of it, but you don't get much of a view. To get the maximum benefit of that window, you need to be, in fact, laying in the bed, and then it's, you know, the bay opens up to you. The same in the dining room. Uh, when you go into the dining room, it's, it's a lovely room, but to get the maximum benefit of the window, you need to be seated at the table, because right? that's where it, that's where it's placed. So the bed by the window. I chose the bed by the. Uh, let me get my sorry, my glasses in here. I want to make sure I get this. I could probably almost do it by memory, but I don't want to come close. I chose the bed downstairs by the sea window for a good deathbed when we built the house. It is ready, waiting, unused, unless by some guest in a 12-month who hardly suspects its latter purpose. I often regard it with neither dislike nor desire, rather with both, so equaled that they kill each other and a crystalline interest remains alone. We are safe to finish what we have to finish. And then it will sound rather like music when the patient daemon behind the screen of sea rock and sky thumps with his staff and calls thrice, come, Jeffers. And as I said, he thumped his staff as it called, come, Jeffers, thrice, January 20th, 1962. Mm -hmm. Okay, uh, any, any questions? Thank you. Thank you very, very much. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate it. All the materials are yours. Oh, is that wonderful? They're all yours. All right. Uh, I have to tell you, I'll give you a quick, a quick comic aside. Uh, Elliot Ruckowitz Roberts is, I mean, I think it's fair to say that Elliot's probably the one who keeps the poetic flame alive on the peninsula. And that's a really great guy and works tirelessly. And he became the coordinator. Uh, he's the one putting this entire, who's put this entire big read event together. It's, it is an extraordinarily good, good soul. So, uh, as you'll notice, inside here, in each one of these, there is, in fact, this little sticker that says National Endowment for the Arts. So, uh, I have to tell you this. Uh, it's just kind of leave us with a smile. I was commenting to my wife. And I said, yeah, you know, said, some poor intern at the NEA got stuck sticking <laughs> one of these in each one of these, right? Some poor, you know, some poor college slob. This is your job, right? The next two weeks, you're putting this one of these in every one of these, right? So Elliot came by my house last night to drop off some books to make sure that I had enough for today. And he says, did you see these? You know I had to put one in each one of these? <laughs> and there were a thousand of those books. Yes, yes. <laughs> so they Elliot was my uh, poetry teacher when I went to MPC. Yeah, yeah he's a great guy. Mm -hmm. Great guy. Well, thank you very, very much. Thank May you. I have You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.